Our text is Isaiah 22. And I know we have already done a lot of Bible reading this morning, but I want to go ahead and begin by reading our text, which is the first 14 verses of this passage. So it would help if you have a copy of the Bible that you can look at yourself. Of course, it's on the screen, but I'll be making reference to various parts of this text. So you can put it in front of you. Let's look together at Isaiah 22. The Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and of trampling and confusion in the valley of vision a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pools, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day... The Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for Until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom and discernment as we read this text today and hear it. We ask that you would cause us to hear your voice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about five years ago. I was sitting in my office in my nice cozy study chair reading some book. And... uh, I realized that something was wrong because the words that I was trying to focus on were blurry. And I realized that I had presbyopia, which is not a fear of Presbyterians. It means old eyes. I had old eyes. Uh, In other words, I was coming to the point in my life where I experienced what so many people do in their mid-40s or late 40s, 
and that is the beginnings of the onset of farsightedness. Being able to see far away, but unable to really get my eyes anymore to focus on things that are up close. Now, other people, maybe some of you, have the opposite problem, and you're nearsighted. You have what's called myopia. You see objects that are right in front of you just fine, but when things are further away, you have trouble being able to focus at a distance. And I want to remind you this morning that there is such a thing as spiritual myopia, the inability to see beyond what's right in front of us, beyond the immediate moment, the inability to focus, spiritual distractedness, a lack of discipline to really be able to see God and to see His work in our lives and its application to us. The Bible makes it clear that God's people are given a kind of spiritual sight. That spiritual sight is called in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, faith. Right? We see through eyes of faith. Earlier we sang the hymn, By Faith, which was based on Hebrews chapter 11. And in that chapter, the Bible says that Moses endured by seeing him who is invisible. How does, that, how does that passage begin? Most of you remember, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith operates in these two realms, doesn't it? Faith operates in the realm of the future. Faith is the ability to see what is yet to come, just as surely as if it's happening right in front of you, based on God's revealed will what he says will be the case. Faith believes those things that are yet hoped for. And faith operates in the realm of the invisible. Faith is like a set of spiritual eyes to see the realities of what's going on around us where other people can't see it. Faith is the ability to see those things that are not seen. And that really is kind of the dual function of prophecy. Prophecy in the Scriptures was a vision from God. A vision, sometimes, uh, of things that are yet hoped for, things that are far off, things that are yet to come. In other words, visions, prophets, by God's grace, predicted the future. But on the other hand, sometimes prophets were seers in a different sense, not seeing the far distant future, but just seeing reality for what it was, and really telling people what God was up to interpreting the events that were happening contemporaneously to the people, but from God's perspective. This was the ministry of the prophets. And I don't think any city, in fact, I know, that no city or no location on the face of the planet was a recipient of greater prophetic vision than the city of Jerusalem. God sent his prophets there again and again and again. He raised up his voices and gave his revelation to those people. But it's possible to see and yet not see, right? You know what I mean? To be able to see with physical eyes, but really not to see and perceive in a spiritual level. And those are the kinds of people to whom this prophecy is addressed. Take a look at verse 1. According to that verse, this prophecy 
concerns the valley of vision. Now, this is a kind of title that's in keeping with the enigmatic nature of all of the titles of these second series of oracles in chapters 20 to 23. But as we go through the context, it'll shed light on who these people are in the valley of vision. If you look at verse 4, you get a hint, because Isaiah says that it concerns the destruction of the daughter of what? Of my people. And then in verse 8, he makes reference to something called the house of the forest. In verse 8, the house of the forest, um, which is a reference, if you follow it in the scriptures, it's a reference to part of the Solomonic um, palace. Uh, it was made with huge columns from the famed Lebanese cedars, and so it was called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. And and it was it was kind of like it was kind of like the Tower of London in the UK, that it in that it functioned as kind of a a grand royal place, uh, a place for the king to meet dignitaries, a kind of entrance into the royal palace, as well as functioning as housing for the royal guard and for the state treasures. And it was also, of course, the armory where all of the great weapons of war were kept and housed. And so you have a reference to these places in verse 8. And then in verse 9, you have it explicitly references to the city of David and the houses of Jerusalem, as well as the city of Jerusalem's water supply. So this is about Jerusalem, the city of God, the city where God had chosen to put his name. This vision comes regarding not one of the foreign nations of the world, but about God's own holy city, that city that was a recipient of more prophetic revelation than any other place on earth. I mean, if anyone can see reality, it should have been those people, right? They'd been taken up into the mountain with the with the prophetic seers again and again and given divine revelation, the, the seers looking far off at visions that would give, should have given those people perspective and should have given them hope for the future. I mean, you think about God's calling Abraham up to Mount Moriah where he revealed himself to him, or Moses up to Mount Sinai, or Elijah standing on Mount Carmel revealing God's will to the people, or the priests who ministered in the temple on Mount Zion. And like the Apostle John, many of these prophets had been carried away in the Spirit to a great high mountain to see, to be recipients of divine revelation. But, in spite of all of the revelation that had come to the people of Judah and to the city of Jerusalem, they could not see beyond what was just in front of them. And I want you to see this in the text. This really is the focus of where this passage is going. It is about what you can see or not see. Look at verse 8. Again, this is addressed to people who are in the valley of vision. And in verse 8, you might want to underline this, he says, In that day you what? You looked. What did they look at? Well, they looked at their 
their weapons and their walls and their waterworks. But look at verse 11. Here's the contrast. But you did not look to him who did it, right? There was a problem with what they saw. It was a problem with what they did not see. Rather than sort of, uh, in, in spite of all of the prophetic revelation that they'd been given, you know, this city of vision, ironically, couldn't see past its face. And, and, and rather than standing with the, the seer on the mountain, they're in the valley of vision. And that is so often where we are, isn't it? We're right down there in the trenches. We're down in the bottom of the ravine. And we can't see further than just a few feet in front of us. All we can see is the immediate surroundings. I mean, we're down there in the valley of the shadow of death, and everything's dark, and everything's obscure to us. And we're down there, and that's all we can see. And we fail sometimes to lift our eyes in that time to be carried away by the Spirit to really see a vision of what who God is and what God is doing, to really reflect, to see things from God's perspective. And that really was exactly the issue with these people. Now, I want you to see it in the text and to see exactly how this unfolds. And, and I think doing that will then will be the, a really powerful um, message for all of us here this morning. Now, let me preface it by saying that um, what we've read here in in the beginning of chapter twenty-two here, this was a this was a, a sermon that was delivered by Isaiah to the people of Judah, and it's an old sermon, obviously, thousands of years old now. And I don't know how many of you have read old sermons, but if you go back and you read an old sermon, a sermon from the Reformation era, for example, or one of the old Puritan sermons or something. Sometimes in reading those things, they'll make references that are obscure to us, right? The immediate historical context and the significance of some of the illustrations that they use or even kind of some of the applications that they're making, are, are the, the details are somewhat lost on us. We don't recognize who that person is that they're referencing or what that situation was about or, or something like that. But the big picture, the, the significance, the, the real value of that thing is, can be still clear and apparent. And I think that's what we have here. Um, a, a sermon that was preached, or a set of sermons perhaps that was preached, whose details may be obscure, but whose main point, I believe, will be apparent. Now, here's how I understand this vision that Isaiah has for these people. Rather than being about one particular historical event, this passage, I think, makes an important spiritual point by drawing on the entire history of Jerusalem during Isaiah's time, and especially focusing on Jerusalem and Judah under the reign of King Hezekiah. Now, In Hezekiah's reign, there were two really pivotal incidents. And we know that they're pivotal because 
in the Kings and Chronicles that we just read, those are the, really the two things that are included about Hezekiah's reign. And when we get to the middle of this book, we're going to read Isaiah's own record of these same two pivotal events during the life of King Hezekiah for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So let me just remind you of what those two were. Right? Both of them had to do with this king who, by the way, was really a good king, and yet in the end, he did really vacillate. And frankly, it's, it's a helpful thing that his record is recorded because that's where a lot of us are. Right? People who are God's people, who really have eyes to see, and yet in our moments of weakness, we vacillate, we get our eyes uh, onto frivolous things and off of, of the Lord and what he's really trying to do in our lives. So they're both about King Hezekiah, and they're both, uh, they both have to do with God's unusual displays of mercy. The first of the events has to do with the Assyrians, who were, of course, the immediate global threat in Isaiah's day. The second of these incidents has to do with Babylon, who would be the future sort of ultimate threat to the people of Judah, the, that empire that would carry them away into captivity. In the first of these events, Assyria had invaded Judea. They had already besieged Lachish, and now they were besieging, setting a, a siege around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is threatened to be starved to death. And Hezekiah cries out to God, and you remember what God does? He answers in a really dramatic way. And he sends his angel and destroys the leadership of the um, of, of the Assyrians, 185,000 people die in a night, and ultimately that, that uh, army packs up and leaves and heads back to Assyria, and the people of Judah are delivered, right? The second really critical incident has to do with Hezekiah's becoming sick, and uh, it didn't make it up on the screen. I left it off when uh, Brian was reading it, but Hezekiah became sick, and he was so sick that he was about to die. And uh, again, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord amazingly healed Hezekiah and extended his life an additional, anybody remember? An additional 15 years, yeah. So these are both, again, amazing acts of God's mercy in the midst of his judgment upon the people of Judah. But instead of being humble before the Lord, you remember how Hezekiah responded? He, he really gloried in his own prosperity, in, in his own security, and he began to concentrate, to really focus on building up the defenses of Israel, of Judah. He built a new wall. He tore down the old houses. He, he secured their water supply and did all of these things. And he, then he foolishly displayed the wealth of Judah and Jerusalem to these envoys, these representatives from Babylon that had come to visit him. At one time, of course, Babylon was seeking Judah's aid against the Assyrians. But in opening up Jerusalem's storehouses to these Babylonian envoys, he was really, as we say, letting the fox into the henhouse, right? 
and it would come back to haunt them. And Babylon would eventually become a major world power, and 150 years later, they would invade Judah and Jerusalem, would sack that city, and would carry its people away into 70 years of captivity. So that's the historical background. Now, in light of all of that, and I think Isaiah is drawing on all of that, let's look a little more closely at the text and really ask the Lord what the enduring significance of a text like this is for us, people who are the Lord's people now. So look in verse 1, the middle of the verse. Isaiah begins, he begins by doing what? How would you say it? Just go ahead and look at the middle of verse 1, right after the introduction there. Take a little read. I would say it this way. Isaiah begins by questioning Jerusalem's response, right, to these providences of God. What do you mean that you have gone up onto your housetops and have shoutings and tumult and great exultation in this town? What's going on, he says. Um, And, of course, what's going on seems to be like some sort of, what would you say? A kind of a celebration, right? They're exulting. They're up on their rooftops. Of course, this is, you know, this is where you would have a, a big gathering of, of your family and friends. They're up on the rooftops and they're, they're having a celebration of some sort, which recalls to mind incidents in Judas, is Jerusalem's history where that may have literally taken place. Like, you know, what do you think it was like in Jerusalem the morning that the lookout from the city comes back from wandering around and, and, and going around that city and, uh, and thousands and thousands of Assyrians are dead on the battlefield. I mean, what do you think the city was like then? I can imagine that this kind of thing would have been exactly what was happening, gathering together and just rejoicing, right? Or like when Hezekiah was raised from his deathbed, and given a new lease on life, right? There's joy and there's, there's celebration. And, I, and, and, what, and what Isaiah is doing is critiquing, he's criticizing that response. And that may seem strange to you, but we'll just got to keep reading, right? What happens secondly now is that he's going to point forward to God's coming judgment on Judah. And I say it's his coming judgment. Judgment. I think that's what's the case because of the nature of what's being described. Um, in the Hebrew, it's not clear whether this is past, something that's already happened, or whether it's something that could happen. It's a perfect tense, which is just kind of a completed type of action. And it could be something that's completed in the past, or it could be prophetically looking in this vision to something as a, as a, a for sure completed thing, and yet it's still in the future in Isaiah's day. So I think he's looking forward now, in the middle of verse 2, he's looking forward now to this judgment of God that is yet to fall upon these still proud people. And he says, Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in what? In battle. He sees a day when, when there are slain people lying 
in, in, on, uh, in the streets of the, the holy city, and they're not slain in battle. They're not slain with the sword. He says, verse 3, all your leaders have what? Have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All, of who, all who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. In other words, he's foreseeing a day when the city will be devastated, but not in a, in a battle, not by the sword. A day when its leaders will flee the city will, and will nevertheless be captured. And that seems to me to fit exactly with what would happen within, you know, a little more than a century or so, 150 years after, after Isaiah's time in the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, 587, 586 B.C. Many people in that city, you can read about this in other places in the Scriptures, they died in that city of starvation. They were... Uh, just devastated within that city, even without the Babylonians having to, to come in and, and, and slay them all. The king, King Zedekiah, actually fled. He, he and his rulers fled. They abandoned the city, and yet they were captured out there on the plains of Jericho and deported to Babylon. Now, whether that's the reference in mind in, in this vision or not, the point is clear Isaiah is basically telling them this. Listen, hey guys, don't celebrate. God's not done chastening you. This is not the time to celebrate. This is the time to be sober about why this is coming upon you. And that's what we have in verse 3. There's a real contrast now. I'm sorry, verse 4. There's a contrast here to Jerusalem's response of celebration that Isaiah had criticized up in verse 2. Look at verse 4. Here's Isaiah's response now. Follow with the text, please. Verse 4, Therefore I said, Look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. He's grieving over God's coming judgment of the holy city. And then he continues in verse 5 to describe the chastening of the Lord. For the Lord of hosts has a day. That's the very same language we saw for the first time back in chapter 2. It describes the day of the Lord, the coming judgment of God. For the Lord of hosts has a day, a day of, verse 5, a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the Valley of Vision, a battering down of walls, which is what happened in that siege, a shouting to the mountains with cries of anguish, right? You know, other places, let the mountains fall upon me. And Elam, he says, verse 6, Elam, which was an ally of Babylon, Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir who we was really uncertain as to who those people were, but they uncovered the shield. This is armies that are arrayed against the people of God. In verse 7, your choicest valleys were full of chariots and your horsemen took their stand at the gates. And lest anyone should question the significance, the, 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 the reality behind what's happening here, behind this invasion, Isaiah spells it out now for them in verse number 8. Take a look. Here is, you want, you want vision? You want to put on your glasses? You want to see what's really going on here? 
Here's what's really going on here. Verse 8, For God, He, God, has taken away the covering of Judah. God has removed her covering. And that language, by the way, is used back in Exodus of that glory cloud. You remember when God led the people of Israel through the wilderness with this glory cloud? And it was a pillar of fire by night, a bright light, and it was a pillar of cloud by day. And when they were led by God to the very shores of the Red Sea, what happened? The armies of Egypt were behind them. And there at the Red Sea, the Bible says that glory cloud came and acted as a covering for them. And it brought great darkness upon the Egyptians so that they could not pursue the Israelites while they were crossing the sea. And on the other side, it provided light. It illuminated their way so that they could make their way to safety. And now what is Isaiah saying? God is going to take that covering and remove it from you. His hand of protection, His presence that leads and guides you and protects you as His people is being lifted from you. Don't you see what's happening, he says? Are you blind? Can you not understand? Do you not, do you not have eyes to see what is going on? And you're standing up there on the housetops just rejoicing that, that all of the trouble is past. No, friends, listen. God wants you to see more than that. Don't be short, so short-sighted. And so with that prophetic vision, the people of Judah should have been able to see this for what it is and should have responded appropriately. But, look at the middle of verse 8 now. But, how did they respond? Where did they look? In that day, he said, you looked to what? The weapons of the house of the forest? In fact, that was the very place where one of the places, at least, where Hezekiah took those envoys from Babylon to show off the wealth and the security of the people of the city of Jerusalem. You looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and verse 9, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. There were, there were broken down places in the walls, so they built them up. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you accounted, you counted up the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke them down to fortify the wall. They did sort of a, a survey to find what houses could be demolished so that they could use those stones. In Israel, all these stones get just reused again and again and again. To reuse the stones to fortify this wall, they're concerned about being secure in the face of this Assyrian threat. And verse 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Back in 2007, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And one of the things I got to do was to go down into what's now called Hezekiah's Tunnel. I think I meant to bring a picture and I forgot about it, but uh, there was uh, there there is a stone uh, channel cut out through solid limestone running from the spring of Gihon, which used to be outside the city walls, and they covered it up in in Hezekiah's time so that they could not be attacked as a as a point of vulnerability by the Assyrians, and they dug this channel into the city to fill up these pools that uh, are inside the city limits now. They are inside the walls. They built the walls out so that the people could have security, right, in their drinking water. When all of this happened, what did the people do? That's what they're looking at. They're looking at how can we fix our problems here. 
All of the, everything's going bad for us. So what do we need to do? We need to address these things. Now, friends, is it, is it right to address things that are, that are problematic? Is it right to prepare for, for uh, hardship and for distress? There's nothing wrong with that per se, but you'll see the real problem that's, gonna, that's coming up is that they did not see in all of this that was happening what they were supposed to see. They didn't have eyes to see. They were too nearsighted. All they could see was, 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 what, was, was what was right in front of them. And what was Israel's response to all of this chastening? Verse 11, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. For all of God's threats against them, for all of his warnings, and on the other hand, for all of his reprieves and his displays of mercy, like slaying the army and raising up Hezekiah, they did not look to the Lord. They were too nearsighted to see that all of this was his work designed to call the people of Jerusalem back to himself. That was, there was a purpose behind this. There was a heavenly hand behind this distress. And all they could see was the distress and trying to deal with it on a sort of surface level. Now verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 12. While it's not wrong for them to strengthen the walls or to cache their weapons or to secure their water, what was wrong was that they did not see the providences of God as what they were, and that is a call to repentance. Verse 12, In that day the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. But how did they respond? Read the end of the verse. Take a look. God said, hey, this is a time for weeping. This is a time for repentance. But they responded with joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Instead of mourning, they were partying. Instead of repenting, they were rejoicing in their narrow escape from destruction. In fact, in chapter 39, after God spared Hezekiah's life, gave him those 15 additional years, he was proud, showed off the treasures of Babylon. And remember what we read? God said, okay, listen, one day, he's doing the same thing with Hezekiah personally that he's doing with the entire city of Jerusalem in general. He's saying, this is not the time to just be proud and joyful that that you've had a reprieve. This is a time to really reflect on what God is trying to tell you in your life. But instead of that, you remember how Hezekiah responded? When God said, hey, listen, I'm not done with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring chasing, and one day your descendants, your sons, are going to be taken away captive into Babylon. And Hezekiah just said, well, phew, at least it's not in my day, right? This is what I mean about being nearsighted. Spiritually nearsightedness. All he can see is getting out of the distress that's right in front of him, the immediate problem that he has. And so many of us are like that. We're just, we're just wanting to get immediately out of the problems that we're in. And when God does send us reprieves and blessings and mercies, we just, 
we're now we're off to uh, partying and distracting ourselves with with all of the wonderful things of life and never taking a moment to stop to pause and to consider what is God doing in my life to get my eyes off of my immediate circumstances and onto God who planned it all from long ago. The goodness of God is meant to lead us to what? Yeah. And of course, sometimes when we are in distress, we do, we do cry out to God. But then the moment he sort of lets off the pressure, so to speak. Have you ever had this? We just sort of fall right back into being distracted with the vanities of life. Eat, drink, be merry. Like Hezekiah, when the judgment seems far, far off, we're tempted to be at ease. The message is simply this. Brothers, sisters, don't be so foolish. Don't be nearsighted. How long will we presume upon the mercies of God and not allow those mercies to have their good effect in our hearts? Will we, like Judah, distract ourselves in the face of impending peril and maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. They're, they're like, uh, you know, look again at verse 13. Behold, I, what did Isaiah see in their land? Instead of mourning and weeping and fasting and, and contemplation and reflection and repentance and seeking after God and seeing Him, instead of that he saw joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, and saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. For tomorrow we die. It's like, seize the moment. I mean, while it's here, while things are okay, while we're in a good spot, just just make the most of it. Eat and drink and party. Because, you know, that threat is hanging over our heads. Even even in the moments of blessing and reprieve and, and, and grace from God, when He relented, when he gave them the 15 years, when he slew the 185,000, even in those moments, they refused to really see what God was doing. This is why James tells his readers in James 4 verse 9, friends, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, <laughs> life is great, it's so fun. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. The Lord wants you miserable? No, the point is to humble yourselves before the Lord that He may exalt you. He wants you to be humble, to learn, to hear, to see what He's doing in your life. This is the whole message that, that, uh, of Isaiah to these people. And you know, the devil's plan. The devil's, one of his great strategies is to create so much noise and so much distraction in our lives, eating and drinking and merrymaking, that we can't hear the voice of God warning us, calling us to be so fixated on the immediate circumstances of our lives, the frivolous little vanities of this world, when judgment is at the gate, 
when his chastening is right around the corner, instead of lifting our eyes up to him, we're caught up in these little frivolous nothings. And brothers and sisters, how many of us have been there, right? How many of us have been right there? It is a fearful thing. Look at verse 14. Here's how it ends. The voice of God is clear to the prophet. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. And it is a fearful thing to fail to see God and to hear his voice until it is too late. Friends, the world is filled with frivolous distractions. Don't we feel that? Eating, drinking, merrymaking. I mean, what do people do every day when they come home from work? They can't wait to sit down and flip on Netflix or watch that sports game or just zone out and tune in to comedy specials. The world will fill your life with eat, drink, and be merry, right? Don't think, don't see, just enjoy and forget. Just take a a flight from reality. These are intoxications of the soul that keep us from seeing God being reflective on what he's really up to in our lives. We can't see God and see that great reality of his gracious hand, his loving care in chastening if if we are focused myopically on just the little vanities in front of us. We cannot hear the Lord's voice speaking prophetically to us to interpret what's going on in our lives if we're just filling our ears with noise. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you as this passage has challenged me to create time in your life, a quiet space in your life for sober reflection. You know, we fill up our schedules, don't we? Isn't that pretty true? We, we fill them up with, with work and school and sports and entertainment fills in all the rest of the gaps. There's not hardly a minute left. No room left for contemplation, to go up on the mountain and see the vision. There are so many inputs in our lives, noise coming at us from the television and the radio and music and podcasts and texts and emails and social media, and you can spend, listen, you can spend days upon days upon days without ever having a moment to contemplate, to hear and to see your God. Yeah? 
Brothers and sisters, are we there? And I'm talking to people who I know are good people who love God like Hezekiah and yet can be distracted and so nearsighted. Most of us need more pauses in our lives. Really slow down. And I would encourage you to do that, to just do that, to take a moment, to take, to create moments this week for sober reflection so that you can hear the voice of God. To take a walk. Sometimes that's the best way, isn't it? Just to get away from the house, because you know at the house there's all of those things. There's the eating and drinking and being merry at the click of a button or the swipe of a finger. You just get away and to walk, to contemplate, to pray, to examine your soul, to ask what God is doing in your life, to unplug, get away from all of those distractions that are so readily accessible. Memorize the word of your Lord. Memorize God's word. I've found, you know, that that's one of the things about memorization. It it makes you contemplate. It forces you to really pause and reflect, to see the vision of God's revelation. You know, you've got time for so many things in your life, and maybe you've allowed yourself to be so busy and your life to be so noisy that you've squeezed out what's most important, and that is the sound of God's voice speaking to you through His Word. Maybe you need to take time to reflect on what God is doing in your life by writing. I've found, too, that sometimes pausing to just contemplate and to write down in a journal the things that God is doing in my life, the things that God is teaching me, the ways He's dealing with me. It's not that writing it down or journaling is like a magic pill. what's, What's important about this is that you're pausing to contemplate, to come away from all of the eat, drink, and be merry for who knows what tomorrow's gonna hold to come away from that and say, Lord, what are you doing in my life? More of that. More of that. Pray that we may be able to see beyond the moment, even in those times when God is merciful, that we would not presume upon his goodness and say, okay, the pressure's off but rather to let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We would see beyond the immediate relief to where the end of the path will lead if we keep going that way. Because it will lead somewhere, right? It will. Let me me tell you, every path will lead to a destination. Whatever path you're on now, look beyond. I mean, get your eyes up a little bit. See where God says that path will lead. That's what these moments of sober reflection are for. It's what Israel failed to do. May God be merciful to us that we would not be so nearsighted as to miss 
the Lord and what He's trying to do in our lives. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and undistracted contemplation and repentant hearts that look to Christ. Let's pray and take time to look to Him right now. Set everything else aside and just to spend a few moments, even as we close the service, contemplating right now on what God is doing in your life, on your path, on your trajectory. Our Father, please give us eyes to see, to see you and to see what you're doing, to see our lives through the lens of your word. Please, Father, forgive us for being caught up with the vanities of the world. We pray that you would chasten us, correct us, instruct us, and bring us on the path of repentance and forgiveness and growth. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his shed blood. Thank you for giving yourself to take our place that we may be forgiven and made right before you. Thank you for Christ who died, was buried, and rose again. All our hope and our righteousness and our forgiveness is all wrapped up in Him. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.